0: With global inequality continuing to rise, the fight for economic justice remains central to so much change making. We can see it in the wage demands of unions, the global right to housing campaigns, social mobilisations like Occupy, or the battle for climate justice. All of these movements ask the same question who has the power to deliver economic justice? Who's the right target? And all of these movements recognise that the state has a crucial role to play. In Western nations, from Germany to Australia, from the United Kingdom to the United States and Scandinavia, the welfare state grew to provide all citizens with a level of economic security. But it wasn't just about redistribution. The welfare state also allowed societies to manage the risks that are inherent in modern life. But today, the modern welfare state is under pressure. Chronic illness, climate change, and pressure on taxation, just to name a few, are calling on us to reimagine what a future safety net needs to look like. Today's Changemaker Chat is with Daniel Molino. Daniel is a member of the Australian Federal Parliament and author of the book Safety Net. He is part of the Labor Party and has had a career that has traversed from local to national government. He's also worked in public policy and researched the welfare state globally. In this chat, we explore how he came to be interested in the welfare state and how he has reimagined its role in this time of crisis. His book, Safety Net, The Future of Welfare in Australia, is available from Black Ink Press. This podcast was recorded at a live event held at Glee Books in Sydney. So let's go. I'm Amanda Tattersall. Welcome to Changemaker Chats. Conversations with people changing the world. Changemakers also produces episodes that are feature stories about social change campaigns. Changemakers is supported by the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers, and community campaigners, so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au/backslash policy-lab. Changemakers also runs an organising school where you can sharpen your skills to make change in the world. All the details are on our website, where you can also sign up to our email list. It's changemakerspodcast.org.
1: Please join me in welcoming both Daniel and Amanda to the Gleebook stage.
0: Thank you. And Daniel, welcome to this Glee Books event and to Changemakers podcast. My first question to you and for the audience as well for you to, to address is, you know, if you were to think of yourself as someone who makes change in the world, you know, you do lots of different things as well as being a book writer, what kind What, what kind of changemaker maker? Are you?
1: Well, thanks, uh, Amanda. And can I also uh, acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we meet and pay respects to Elders past, present and emerging and to say that as somebody who finally is a member of an incoming Labor government, it's nice that we're going to be in a position to uh, enact some meaningful change uh, on that front. And can I thank Amanda for the opportunity for the discussion and also um, for many people in the audience who I've had discussions with uh, in relation to uh, many of the issues in this book. So to the extent that I misrepresent uh, any of the conclusions of those discussions uh, <laughs> apologies, but look—it's it's an interesting um, question. Um, I've been interested in uh, change in the public policy uh, realm for, for a long time now, you know, going back to, in a sense, uh, teenage years, where um, you know I, I became really interested in public policy back in the, the days when um, the Hawke–Keating government uh, were elected, uh, and was very energised by uh, what was the first oh, the second labor government uh, since the war and it felt like heady times. Uh, I was only fourteen at the time, but in a sense gained my political consciousness uh, through the course of that government uh, and I, I felt very uh, excited by a lot of the groundbreaking reforms in economics uh, floating the dollar tariff reforms uh, superannuation tax reform but what really uh, inspired me was the fact that they were married with Social reforms, so there was the social wage, Medicare dramatically increasing the the high school retention rate, which of course benefited people from disadvantaged backgrounds in particularly and the accord so for me, it was really marrying those two, which was m- most critical, and that inspired me to to get involved in in, in public policy and I I've really been involved in public policy, in the public service, um, in local government, in, in state government and now in, in federal government and kind of feel that on, on a lot of the big questions, how all the different moving parts um, either should work together or every now and then actually do work together.
0: Excellent. I do love that you've sort of got... You've won the all-in prize for working at all three levels of government. Not everyone can, not everyone can say that they have that, but, but, Daniel, you have that and that is it gives you an extraordinary lens on this question of how things like social insurance and the welfare state work, because you've worked at a national as well as at a local level and everything in between. But before we get into that, I'd like to explore with you a little bit more about why you do this. You you started off by saying that you were inspired by the public policy of of Hawke and those early, those earlier days when you were younger and what you saw that was... I love that you found, super, you know, superannuation super exciting because that really does show that you're definitely going to the right place in terms of political life. But why was that important to you? Like, I think it was important to some people, but a 14-year-old, like, is there anything in your life that intersected with these moments that really grabbed your passion for public policy as a young man?
1: Yeah, look, I, I suppose on one level, uh, mum was a teacher dad was a nurse, my sister ended up becoming a police officer and so I felt as though I was very close to people who were trying to serve the community in in different ways and so that was always something I felt in a very concrete way like I'm sure many people uh, in this room do and uh, of course there are many different ways to to serve the community, but I think, um, you you know, I I kind of felt through the work of my mum and dad in particular, um, the highs and lows, you know, there were many times when they were inspired by what happened at work. Uh, You know, mum was one of those teachers that always gave extra, was always doing extracurricular things. She was the one who organised the plays, so I don't have a theatrical bone in my body, but I feel as though I've been to uh, a thousand rehearsals uh, when I was much younger. So mum was somebody who really uh, put in as a teacher, but also, you know, Over the course of careers, you also see how the system sometimes impedes people's uh, capacity to uh, do what they want to do. So that was one dimension. But I guess the other side of it is I always felt drawn to uh, the capacity of the political system to, in a sense, uh, make change at a systemic level to provide assistance to people in those kinds of professions to do what they want to do better. Cool.
0: Yeah. I mean, you're like listing off your family was is a walking essential worker space, <laughs> you know, almost. It's extraordinary to, to have so many people doing so much care work in the one family. Just to, to, to step ahead, you talk, you mention in the book about how a sort of there was a lot of thinking and and experiential change that happened for you when you went to Yale. I love the fact that I got corrected it wasn't Harvard, it was (laughs) Yale, and and actually there's intense competition between Yale and Harvard, to Yale, where you did your PhD and you spent quite a lot of time sort of learning and immersing yourself in a a system that was very different to the Australian welfare state. Tell us about what that time was like and how it changed your perspective on, on... on how you see public policy.
1: Yeah, so uh, look, it was a transformational experience in the sense that being in that kind of institution, you're exposed to uh, amazing teachers and fellow students. Uh, So two of the people that taught me uh, macroeconomics, uh, Robert Schiller and Bill Nordhaus have since gone on to win the Nobel Prize, and, and Bill Nordhaus for modelling climate change. Obviously nothing to do with my having been there, but just <laughs> it happens... It, it, uh, but, you know, you, you're, you're in an environment which is very intellectually stimulating. But it was also an environment where, in a funny kind of way, I also became more politically active than I had been. I, I was, you know, quite an active uh, unionist in a sense. When I had been in Australia, I worked in retail um, from the age of uh, 16 to 24 and ended up becoming the uh, you know, union delegate at a, a, a big W in Canberra. And, you know, I'd, I'd felt that the union um, provided uh, incredibly important protection for very vulnerable people. So that was very formative for me when uh, I was uh, in Australia growing up. And fast forward to being at Yale, and I kind of landed in the midst of this unionization campaign for graduate teachers. Now, you might think, well, graduate teachers are people who are there on a scholarship. They're getting $20,000 a year US and no fees to basically do a PhD. So what's the big deal? Like, Why do you need to unionize? And in, for many of them, that was true to an extent. But for me, firstly, there was the principle of the matter. like. Uh, Yale is a very liberal institution in that 90% of the professors uh, are Democrat voting and uh, uh, you know very liberal in terms of a lot of the discussions that go on on campus. But the university is extremely um, hardcore as an employer, and so was resisting unionisation. Um, but it, it also mattered because a lot of graduate students um, had kids, and so in America your conditions often affect whether you get health insurance, for example, or not. So it actually did uh, matter. A- and I found myself uh, organising um, the economics department, which was the second biggest department, but one of the least unionised, ended up going to people's houses, trying to unionise them, and you'd knock on their door and they'd be standing on the other side of the door silently, hoping you'd go away. We ended up uh, having the second, uh, some of the biggest rallies New Haven had ever seen with Jesse Jackson. Uh, we had civil disobedience and uh, hundreds of us got arrested and and Yale uh, continued to resist. So for me it was uh, quite a transformational uh, experience. We didn't succeed ultimately and and Yale to this day hasn't allowed uh, graduate teachers to unionize. Uh, Back in the 80s when all of the administrative workers had a clear majority on card count, uh, Yale forced them to strike for 12 weeks before they would recognize their union. So for me this was uh, something that was transformational and I came back to Australia and not long afterwards found myself as deputy mayor of an outer suburban uh, area Um, I I suppose trying to apply some of that activism.
0: Yeah so tell us a little bit more about this like not everyone who does a PhD in Yale even if they're activist comes back and goes oh I know what I should do I should become an elected representative with the Labour Party. Why? Why? Why politics? Why and not only why did you choose it First, why have you stuck with it as a space for your action?
1: Well, look, just as I suppose you know anybody in this room, and, and I referred before to you know mum and dad experiencing the ups and downs uh, of any kind of workplace or profession or occupation. Politics has uh, its ups and downs, and there are like plenty of frustrating days. But, but over the course of having been uh, a local councillor and uh, a state. Member in the Andrews government in the first term, and now three years in opposition federally, and hopefully a lot longer in government. We'll see. But look, there. But there are things that you can do in politics that I do think uh, make a difference. And and I think uh, I think it was Keating that said, you know, when you change the government, it changes the country. Each level of government in Australia, I think, really matters. And I must say that when I went into local government, uh, it was an eye-opener for me. Uh, it, it matters a lot more to people's day to day lives than I think you realise until you're immersed in local government. It's really cradle to grave. They provide maternity services to families that really need it, and uh, services for kids through playgrounds and parks, and uh, services for the eldest in the community. Um, but at each level of government, uh, I've found that if you are willing to um, be innovative, you can, uh, you can make a difference that lasts.
0: Okay, so now we're going to shift into the, the, what we're, everyone's been waiting for, an extensive discussion of the welfare state. But we're going to start... I mean, this is a quite an extraordinary text, right, Safety Net? It, it goes... Uh, it provides a historical context for understanding where all this stuff about the welfare state comes from That that is... A long way before we started talking about um, post World War II reconstruction or or, or or the rise of hawk, the, hi- the history of the welfare state or, or social insurance is is vastly longer and more intricate. So. Daniel, for those for those of us, or for those who are still yet to read the book, because I'm sure they're going to read it by the, by the end of this conversation, tell everyone a little bit about what you have found, about where the welfare state come from, came from, how it started, and how did it spread? Like, what spread this brilliant idea over so many different countries over
1: time? Yeah, yeah. so look, I started very early, as you say, Amanda, and I I basically think the the, the journey of risk management is, I think, a really useful way of understanding the welfare state. So if you go back to the most early societies, agricultural societies and hunting societies, we now have a pretty good understanding that many of those societies developed very sophisticated food-sharing arrangements. And in a sense, it, it... it makes sense that they they developed that because it was a matter of life and death, and so we know that risk management uh, was uh, something that that humans undertook, you know, right from the beginning of living together. Uh, if you go to Greek and and uh, Roman communities, uh, they had occupational guilds and occupational societies that look very much like the medieval guilds, and they would often provide burial services, survivor benefits, and often things that look like modern unemployment benefits. Again, these things make uh, common sense and, and even in ancient societies uh, humans were grasping how to help each other in ways that um, took the edge off risk A- and then you fast forward further to and there are obviously gaps in this presentation but um, you know the, the
0: Everyone the, should yeah, read the yeah, book right? No, read no, the yeah, book if they want book, to know the definitive
1: And my book doesn't cover every aspect of risk management but you know <laughs> the 16th and 17th centuries and the rise of what we might think of as modern insurance and we could only insure things when we understood probability. And that didn't happen until Pascal and Fermat in the 17th century. Before that, we didn't even really understand the, the basics of probability. And, and, and it was um, John Graunt and Edmund Haley of Comet fame who started collecting the most basic data about how humans lived and died and got sick. So uh, private insurance arose there. Uh, but then you, you, you move forward to the late 19th century and, and Bismarck was then, uh, I think, probably the, the main uh, embodiment of the... the fair state. Um, Some uh, some Nordic states also were developing institutions at that time. Uh, But he passed a number of critical bills, uh, and I think it's instructive that all of those bills had the word insurance in the title. Uh, It was insurance for for sickness, insurance for accidents in the workplace, insurance for loss of income, uh, insurance for disability. And, you know, it's it's interesting to me also that sometimes we think we're inventing things Uh, you know, in in the current era when we set up a new program, but you go back 150 years and uh, a lot of those kinds of programs were in fact uh, being conceived of a, a long time ago. FDR's response to the depression, the second New Deal, at the heart of it was the Social Security Act, which I think is probably the most important or one of the most important pieces of legislation in US history. It, it was a massive insurance scheme, the old age survivors and disability insurance scheme, which even to this day, after some tweaks along the way, is by far the biggest preventer of, dis- of, of, of po- poverty in the United States. And then, of course, there was all the post-World War II reforms uh, in the UK after the Beveridge report. But at the heart of all these reforms was uh, insurance and risk management and uh, in Australia we went on a journey where we had a succession of r- reforms. Uh, we first brought in old age, the old age pension in 1908, Curtin brought in a whole range of reforms during World War II and then of course there was Medicare and superannuation and the NDIS. But again, I think for me it, it doesn't embody every single element of that journey, but insurance and risk management uh, was at the heart of so much of what we did.
0: And so many partners to those policy changes along the way, like you can't imagine that so that Medicare would have finally come to exist in 1984 without the union movement being part of those changes, you know, but seeing that sort of transformation of the state over over the sort of 20th century and creating this safety net. So it's it's, docu- it's documented, as I should say, in the book that everyone should read. So one of the other things that you do in the in the book is sort of break down like you're talking now about insurance and the role of risk mitigation as part of how we could think conceptually about the welfare state. Tell us a little bit more about some of the principles you draw out when thinking about you know, to help people think about the welfare state as it's been, and also to think about the welfare state as it needs to become, what are some of the key principles that underpin the social safety net?
1: Yeah, so look, I think there are three key principles that underpin the welfare state. One is uh, universal service provision, one is redistribution, uh, and and risk management is the other. Uh, I think they're all important, and often they're aligned, but sometimes there's a tension between them, and, and sometimes in designing institutions... I think it matters which you place emphasis on. So if if you look at redistribution, redistribution is really important in in developing a fair way of funding the welfare state, and and that's why I think progressive taxes should remain a core funding mechanism for the welfare state. But I also think redistribution can be problematic uh, in that uh, redistribution um, can often result in a point in time assessment of where people lie in an income or a wealth Uh, ranking, uh, when in fact that doesn't necessarily represent uh, where they are in the life cycle or what other events are going on in their lives. Redistribution in in and of itself often relies on picking a certain redistributive justice framework which is a very contentious and difficult and and ultimately subjective frame. And and the other problem for me of redistribution is that uh, it takes us into what I think can often be a them and us frame. So quite often I think when people think of the modern welfare state, they often think first of unemployment or similar kinds of transfer schemes that uh, can be quite contentious. You think of those long lines of people uh, waiting for unemployment benefits. But in the uh, pre-COVID federal budget, unemployment was 20 billion or less most years. You can trust that to the health system and to the retirement income system, they're both many orders of magnitude greater than unemployment. Um, they're, they're 100 plus billion each and even more when you look at all the different components that sit with them and, and the private sector components that sit with them. So the vast majority of the welfare state I think isn't like that and I, I think it's it redistribute, the redistributive frame as I said is important but sometimes it can make us think of the welfare state as a group who's giving and a group who's receiving. So Joe Hockey talked about the lifters and the leaners. In America they talk about the makers and the takers and in England they talk about the strivers and the skivers. But uh, that's not the way the welfare system works. The vast majority of the welfare state is all of us pulling and all of us taking, like we saw this during COVID, the the, the health system uh, benefited all of us. We we all relied on uh, testing, on tracing, on vaccines, on on hospitals, on on well-trained health professionals. Universal service delivery, again, is very uh, important, um, but I think in some areas it it stands out, like vaccination uh, or childcare or or GPs, but I think in some of the areas of the the welfare state that are the most expensive and are going to become even more (laughs) expensive, particularly where we're helping our most vulnerable, where they have very long-term challenges, that's where I think the insurance frame uh, can be more useful. Uh, so you know, even though uh, transport accident schemes and uh, workers' compensation schemes aren't perfect, what they tend to do a better job of is finding somebody who's had a, a major trauma in their lives, a major setback, and saying, what do you as an individual need over the long term to get back to where you want to go and you, and need to go. Um, the NDIS is framed around that. It's not where it needs to be, but hopefully we can fix that now that we're in. But, but I think that particularly where it's uh, very complicated, long-lasting challenges in people's lives, I think that insurance frame is a more constructive one. Uh, and as I mentioned before, I actually think the insurance frame Better describes what the welfare state uh, actually does.
0: So this is what let's dig into this question because part of the book proposes the idea that if we were to take a social insurance lens and apply it to the question of the welfare state, that that's where we can start to have innovation around how we spend and how we fund for for individual risk and for social risk. So if we start with the question of individual risk, I mean we know that there is desperate levels of insecurity in modern life you know so, and and as you described like some of it's handled well but much of it could be better and we also know that there's not a massive appetite for greater taxation so there's a sort of challenge to the welfare state that there's a need to sort of do better with what we're spending rather than necessarily just have more. So, thinking, you know, using your frame around social insurance, and you've got some great examples in the book. Maybe you want to talk us through one of those stories. But, you know, how could government do differently when it thinks about About the welfare state, when if it was to use an insurance frame to come at some of the challenges that we face.
1: Yeah. So, so look, there are a few examples in the book of things that I worked on in state uh, parliament. Each of which I think could be expanded. One example related to women's and girls' change rooms uh, in sporting facilities, and here there was a uh, a risk management uh, issue which I think enabled government to. Uh, dramatically expand it, its uh, impact. So w- we had a $14 million grants program uh, for women's and girls' change rooms. Now. At that time, the demand for facilities was uh, going through the roof because of AFLW and all sorts of other factors. Um, so the $14 million was snapped up and wasn't even touching the sides. There were many, many uh, sporting clubs uh, in, in uh, my area, and of course I was the uh, Parliamentary Secretary of the Treasurer, so I had a sense of the whole state. Uh, there were many, many uh, sporting clubs crying out for assistance. Um, but uh, we, there was, given budget constraints, there was no real way of uh, expanding that. So what we did was we, we created a, seam, a scheme to sit it alongside that. Uh, it was an additional option. So for the most needy sports clubs, the, the grants were still available and, and we uh, provided those grants on a... a, a on a basis of uh, the, the merits of projects. Uh, but we, we also set up a, a scheme where, where a, a project um, generated a little bit of revenue. So for example, if a, uh, a faci- the new facilities might be able to be uh, hired out for functions to other community groups, or maybe there was a cafe, what the state government would do was to set up uh, partnership arrangements where the sporting club would work with local government who often owned the, the, the property, and would work with the State Government, the Health Department and the, uh, the Treasury to, to design the project to maximise um, community benefit, but to also generate a little bit of income. And then the State Government would stand behind the project. So immediately instead of borrowing at 7 or 8 percent from Bendigo Bank, they were borrowing at 1.5 percent at that time. And then what we did was to subsidise their interest for 10 years. So they were paying And so what we found, we weren't sure whether there'd be an appetite for this. Not all clubs we thought would necessarily want to borrow $5 million, and we thought maybe all clubs would just decide to wait in the queue. But it was massively oversubscribed. And so we had hundreds of millions of dollars of applications from clubs to build facilities that would generate a little bit of revenue, but enough to uh, repay these loans. And, And what we found was that using this arrangement we could support more than 10 times the projects than we could through a grants project alone. Now that relied upon us taking on a little bit of risk. To me, in a sense, it's uh, reminiscent of HEX in a way and uh, a lot of those kinds of schemes which I think uh, massively expanded access to university here and have, has been adopted in so many countries around the world. But for me, um, it's an example of where risk shifting uh, can often generate huge benefits uh, where you don't necessarily have to spend more but you, 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 you can achieve a lot uh, by sharing risk and understanding it better.
0: So this is a creativity that comes from from thinking about money and thinking about risk and exchange using a social insurance model. So my last question, and then we'll open up for a bigger discussion, is I wanted to turn... And the book deals with this, right, to the question of climate change, right? It's the issue of our time. If we're talking about risk mitigation and stress and anxiety the level of uncertainty about what's going to happen is 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 high. How does your work and your approach and your thinking about, about the, the welfare state help us imagine a powerful and effective safety net for a world where we're experiencing increasing levels of crisis and challenge because of climate change?
1: Yeah, so, look, the majority of this book is about risk at the individual level, and, and I think that that is, for me, uh, the most profound and important set of risks to manage, and it means the most to people in my electorate, and, and that's what I, in a sense, care most about. And actually, it's also the set of risks that's going to hit the bottom line the most. But look, we also face society-wide risks. And so I do spend a bit of time in the book looking at pandemics, not surprisingly, given I wrote this book while bunkered down uh, in an eight-month COVID uh, shutdown, Um, but also climate change, uh, natural disasters. And in a sense, if you look at uh, Australia, we're like most countries. Um, The Productivity Commission found that between 2009 and 2012, we spent 50 times more cleaning up natural disasters than on Uh, preparation and mitigation and for COVID, as you can imagine, it would be far greater than 50 to 1 and and every other country is in the same boat. But for me climate change is a really interesting case study in how you think about uh, risk and uncertainty. So I went back through all the IPCC reports uh, and and also some uh, studies before that and was looking at uh, this indicator called climate sensitivity, which is one of the key inputs to climate models. It essentially is an estimate of what happens to mean global temperatures if you double Uh, carbon in the atmosphere, obviously a key input into what's our likely impact under different scenarios. Uh, Now There was a a report called the Charney Report in the late 1970s, which the US government put out, which was very similar to the IPCC reports, bringing hundreds of scientists together and trying to get them all to aggregate their various models and thoughts. Then, of course, there's been a whole bunch of work since then, and then all the IPCC reports. What was interesting to me is that um, all of those reports just about estimated uh, climate sensitivity at three degrees. So that's good in that we probably are getting it right, um, and, and the fact that it's consistent uh, across such a long period of time is a good thing. But what was also interesting to me is that the Charney report said it was three degrees plus or minus one and a half. So their best guess was three, but you know our confidence interval is 1.5 to 4.5. So you fast forward to the IPCC report before the last one, and it was three degrees plus or minus one and a half. So one thing we don't think about a lot in in general is... The fact that we we talk about point estimates for everything, but we never talk about how certain we are about them. Now, there are some scientists who say, well, look, that partly reflects the fact that probably the people at the time of the Chinese report were massively underestimating how uncertain they were. And... Estimating uncertainty bounds in models is actually much different than like a 1,000 people on which how they're going to vote at the next election. It's actually very difficult to come up with uncertainty bounds. But what became clear to me is that even though our models are now hundreds of millions of times more powerful, uh, there's a lot of uncertainty still around our estimate of climate sensitivity. And for me, that there are many ways we can think about this, but one way would be If it could be 1.5 and it could be 4.5, the precautionary principle would say, well, let's act as though it's 4.5 and let's do a lot right now. And in a sense, we know there's many in the community who would say that. But as economists, we say, well, look, there's trade-offs and, you know, that that costs a lot for people's jobs, often in our most vulnerable communities. So... um, As an economist, my instinct is to say, well, look, maybe what we should do is we should say that three is probably a pretty good guess, but um, we need to update our actions as frequently because we're going to be getting more and more better information over time. But for me, it was one example of where we've got pretty good models, but I think there's much more uncertainty in some of our big areas of public policy contention than we often uh, acknowledge. And again, just to go back to climate models very briefly, the two other big inputs in what, what they call integrated assessment models which look at both the economy and climate, uh, long-term population growth and productivity growth. Uh, Now any... uh macroeconomist who's being honest would say, uh, like, we have no idea about long-term productivity growth. Once you talk about reasonable error bounds there, I mean, the models can go in all sorts of directions. And population growth, again, uh, our our uncertainty bounds there are massive. Uh, The UN has only recently updated to come in line with other major demographic forecasters, but China's population now is forecast to halve by the 20. 100. Uh, Ten years ago, people had uh, very different assessments of that. That's obviously going to help when it comes to the climate. If population uh, starts dropping in a serious way, it won't help their uh, pension bills. But that's another topic for another day. But you know, I, I think there's a really uh, profound set of issues around some of our macro risks, and I actually feel that there are issues of chaos and complexity in some of those big societal issues that I, I don't think we talk about enough. You
0: know. This- this conversation is fascinating to me because I just feel like even if you and I were to disagree on some of these things, I'm just glad that someone who's read this much and has so much such a complex understanding is in Parliament, not only writing books like this, but actually thinking about the policy implications. So I want to thank you, Daniel, for this conversation. So please consider buying the book, get Daniel to sign it and read it. It's a it's a really thought-provoking interesting read especially relevant to these times so thanks changemakers is hosted by me amanda tattersall remember to subscribe to this podcast to catch all our episodes this is series six so there is plenty to be inspired by in our back catalogue i want to thank black ink press and lead books for organizing the live event where this podcast was recorded Changemakers is produced by Lachlan Hodson. Our audio producer is Jules Wooker. Our series sponsor is the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers, and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at Sydney.edu.au backslash policy-lab. Like us on Facebook at Changemakers Podcast and check out changemakerspodcast.org for transcripts and updates on all of our stories. And don't forget to take a look at our organising school if you want to take a deeper dive into the art of change-making.